from my heart and from my hand why don't people understand my intention Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime you want. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also have a link to another podcast that I do that covers more recent movies out in theaters, VOD, or streaming services. The Quipster Film Review Podcast is the name. Check out the link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third part of this three-part series, looking at inappropriate relations between a computer or a computer program and humans. Computer love is what I'm calling this segment. I looked at Demon Seed as well as Electric Dreams in the past couple of episodes. This time I'm going to go to more of a software-based love between computer and human, at least a software program that comes to life. One year after Electric Dreams, it's called Weird Science. Weird Science is a PG-13 rated film. It does have sexuality, brief nudity, violence, teen drinking, and language. The runtime is an hour and 34 minutes. You might get a couple more minutes out of that on the extended version that came out on Blu-ray. Anthony Michael Hall, Elon Mitchell-Smith, and Kelly LeBrock are the main stars. Bill Paxton, Suzanne Snyder, Judy Aronson, Robert Downey Jr., and Robert Russler get smaller roles. John Hughes is the director. He also provides the screenplay. Now, obviously, if you know the 80s and 80s movies, you know John Hughes. This is definitely one of his more well-known feature films from the 80s. In April of 1984, on the strength of his yet-to-be-released into theaters at that time, debut feature as director 16 Candles and John Hughes' script for The Breakfast Club that he was planning to do next, the prolific John Hughes, I mean, he wrote screenplays left and right, many of them unproduced. He entered into this $30 million three-year deal with Universal Pictures. He was going to write, he was going to direct, he was going to develop, he was going to produce two or three medium-budget movies a year for the studio. He wasn't going to direct all of them, but he would definitely have his hand in as a producer and overseer of these projects. Now, according to Weird Science's producer, Joel Silver, Hughes got the idea for Weird Science because One day when he was visiting his office, Hughes and Silver saw this really attractive woman while they were having lunch at the Universal Commissary. Somebody so striking, it stayed in their minds for a couple of hours afterward. And then there was this prolonged time Hughes was sitting in Silver's office because Silver was on the phone. He was having this very lengthy phone conversation. And during this time, Silver had crates of these old EC comics. They were the ones who made Tales from the Crypt and a bunch of other titles horror and science fiction based mostly, but these boxes were being unpacked in his office at the time that Hughes was waiting for him. And that was because Silver had recently acquired the television and movie rights for all of the EC Comics line. Hughes, while he was observing the comics getting unpacked, he saw one with the title Weird Science, this science fiction anthology title. It was a 22-issue series that was published between the years 1950 and 1953. Now, although John Hughes has said later that the story idea for Weird Science was entirely his own, some people on the internet have speculated he may have been disingenuous about this because there's a very good likelihood he looked inside the issue of Weird Science number 5 because in that issue there was an eight-page story It was written by Al Feldstein called Made of the Future. And that story has to do with a man named Alvin, whose fiance leaves him for his best friend. And then his mind goes into a fog at this rejection. He wanders into this guided architectural tour 
of Rockefeller Center. And among that tour, he realizes that the patrons of this tour, other than himself, are from the future. They happen to be visiting this time, the 1950s, to see the architecture as it existed in its era. So he stows away on their futuristic vehicle. He travels 200 years into the future, their year of 2150. While he's there, Alvin sees this advertisement telling lonely men to seek out something called a Construct-A-Wife kit, which, if you purchase the deluxe model of this kit, it promises the perfect wife, a gorgeous woman that never nags. She always smiles adoringly. She'll do all of the chores without any complaint. So Alvin says he has to get his hands on one of these kits, and he procures one, and then he also procures a seat on the next tour back to the 1950s, his era, where he immediately begins to build the perfect woman by using the ingredients in his bathtub. What comes out happens to be a completely gorgeous woman and an adoring wife because he ends up marrying her, and he starts to show her around town, making everybody envious, including his ex. The story ends when his new wife decides to take the Rockefeller Center tour, and then she disappears forever, and that leaves Alvin trying in vain to find the tour from the future again to no avail. Now, the story that Hughes pitched to Silver that day was about these two misfit teens who want to conjure up a very sexy, beautiful woman, like the one that they had seen in the commissary, to be their perfect girlfriend. He imagined that these kids would be eating popcorn, they would be using this computer, and they wanted to see if it could simulate the perfect female. They would scan pictures of gorgeous women into the computer, and then after some magic happens, she appears out of the bathroom, and instead of them controlling her through the rest of the movie, she starts controlling them. Silver liked this idea, so he agreed to produce. Now, he just worked on the script while he was making The Breakfast Club, including the following Saturday, and then he would be shooting all day The Breakfast Club, and then at night he would be working on the script. And by Monday night, a couple of days later, he was already done with his script. He was mailing the first draft to Silver. Hughes soon began to regret that decision because he had his heart all poured into The Breakfast Club, which he was still not quite finished with yet. He loved that idea for a film. He was very much invested in it, but now he had to start producing and directing Weird Science during his off time, and he considered that kind of a trifling, dopey idea for a comedy. Now, the finished plot of Weird Science happens to be about best friends, Wyatt and Gary. They're these suburban Chicago high school geeks. They're tired of being everyone's doormat. They want girlfriends primarily, but their lack of social status seems to make it impossible. So when the traditional methods prove fruitless, the duo decides one day to use Wyatt's computer to try to create a virtual girlfriend. They want to use this virtual girlfriend to ask questions to so that they could get real girlfriends. However, their digital concoction actually comes to life during this freak storm in the form of this smart and gorgeous and magically gifted woman that they name Lisa. Lisa happened to be named after Apple's Lisa computer, one of the first computers to have a graphical user interface. Lisa makes it her mission to transform these dweebs into being the kind of men that other boys want to be and other girls want to be with. To make weird science, Hughes went to his, I guess you would call him his muse, although Molly Ringwald might have something to say with that. Anthony Michael Hall, kind of his surrogate on the screen, he got Hall to agree to be in weird science. So Hall turned down appearing in the next entry in the series that Hughes actually started, the vacation series, European Vacation. He turned that down to be Gary in this film. This kicked off a kind of a recurring joke in the Vacation series to have the Griswold kids played by different actors in every subsequent Vacation movie. 
Weird Science would prove to be Hall's fourth and final appearance in a film written by Hughes. Casting director Jackie Birch is set to fill out the rest of the cast. She saw Elon Mitchell-Smith, who plays Wyatt in the film. She saw him in, in a film called The Wildlife, thought he was very appealing there, and he thought that Elon would play well opposite Hall. Elon, he actually knew Hall from attending the same school in New York for child entertainers called Professional Children's School. Ironically, during the course of making Weird Science, Elon did not really like his on-screen best friend, but he thought the guy who plays the bully brother, the guy that he was not supposed to like, Bill Paxton, he happened to be the nicest guy he had ever met in the business. Less ironic, I suppose, was that Elon would develop a genuine crush on his on-screen girlfriend, at least toward the end of the film, Judy Aronson, unfortunately. She was 20 at the time, and he was about 14, and that kind of put her out of his league, at least in his mind. For Lisa, though, that was the most important casting decision because that was what was going to sell the movie. They auditioned many beautiful, unknown actresses they had in mind. Robin Wright, Sharon Stone, Demi Moore. Hughes also sent out a script to Kelly LeBrock. He had seen her in The Woman in Red and thought she might be perfect for the role if she was interested. But eventually, Robin Wright was the first choice. She was in that slot for about three months, but she had left to do another project that she had auditioned for around the same time. Santa Barbara, the soap opera she would be on for the next few years. Hughes then requested LeBrock come in and audition, but she was busy. She was in the south of France with her husband, Victor Dre, who was producing this film. Coincidentally, kind of an updating of The Bride of Frankenstein, which very much has similar themes to Weird Science, The Bride. LeBrock was having such a good time hanging out with the stars of The Bride, Sting and Jennifer Beals, that she really didn't think she should be bothered to come back to the United States to audition. She kept suggesting to them that they get Kim Basinger instead. She would be perfect. Hughes moved on then to Rod Stewart's model girlfriend named Kelly Emberg. After weeks of rehearsals, though, and initial shooting, Hughes felt discontent with Emberg's acting skills. So he asked one more time to LeBrock to give it another look. She said she would do it for a certain amount of money, more money than she thought that they would ever pay. They paid it. And so off to Skokie, Illinois, LeBrock went for the shoot. LeBrock was initially intimidated when she arrived. She was not only one of the oldest actors on the set, she had the least amount of acting experience among them. She also had to work with these costumes that didn't quite fit her because they were made for Emberg, who had a much different physique. The wardrobe department did what it could, but it was very disconcerting, at least initially. This wasn't the first time that LeBrock happened to take Emberg's place for a spell. LeBrock happened to have had a fling with Emberg's boyfriend, Rod Stewart. Back in 1984, she had invited him to the premiere of The Woman in Red, and he invited her afterward to spend time with him on Catalina Island. The fling went on for about a month. Two years later, in 1986, after Weird Science had come out, Emberg and Stewart were in a restaurant. LeBrock was also there at another table. So LeBrock saw them, had a waiter deliver a note to Stewart's table, simply saying, I miss you. Unfortunately, Emberg read that note, and that put a temporary damper on the relationship with Stewart, although LeBrock had been friends with Emberg in the business. They're both models. LeBrock claims that Stewart, at the time that they had their fling, had told her that they had separated, that they had split up, or she would not have engaged with him in such a manner. But Stewart patched things up with Emberg. He took her on a vacation to Spain, and LeBrock decided she was going to use that time to throw a party in Stewart's Malibu home, and that caused all manner of costly damage physically, as well as damage to their relationship henceforth. Now, as far as the older brother Chet's role, they got Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton, one of his early roles, definitely made a splash in this film. 
Paxton told makeup artist Michael Germain to give his character Chet an intense look. So Germain came up with this idea that he maybe he should have a flat top or a crew cut, long slicked back sides of his hair to give kind of a menacing look. Paxton said, absolutely, go for it. Jermaine thought he would be fired for doing it without permission, but Paxton really insisted. When Paxton showed John Hughes the look, Hughes actually loved it, so it stayed. That was Chet's look. The look maybe changes through the course of this movie because there's a scene later where Lisa turns Chet into this kind of a blob. Paxton was supposed to don this ugly Chet blob suit during the ending of this film, but he got inside it, but he found it too claustrophobic to endure. So had to hire two little people inside to control the blob instead. Makeup creator Craig Reardon, he was asked to make that blob, and he was also asked by Hughes on a whim to do a variety of vulgar things that he thought he should throw in the movie, like flip the bird or pick its nose and flick a booger at Lisa, but Hughes ended up not using most of that in the final cut. Perhaps, thankfully, maybe it was a little too gross. One scene that was cut so that the Chet Blob would be more of a unique surprise was there was another scene that was supposed to take place earlier where the high school bullies, played by Rustler and Downey, escape from this party and they end up turning into a donkey and pig. That was left on the cutting room floor so that the Chet scenes would stand on their own. Robert Rustler, one of those bullies, he was going to be cast opposite Craig Sheffer. It wasn't Robert Downey Jr. initially, but Sheffer left to do another film called That Was Then, This Is Now, And so Robert Downey Jr. was sent over to Birch. She felt very strongly about Downey, and she sent him immediately to meet John Hughes. Anthony Michael Hall, who happened to be in Hughes' office at that time, he took an immediate liking to Downey, and Downey was offered the part. John Hughes also, for some of the more minor casting, he contacted Vernon Wells to do a parody of the character that Wells did in The Road Warrior, or Mad Max 2, depending on where you live. He was going to play a similar character as the leader of this party-crashing biker gang, but Wells didn't want to leave Australia for a bit part, but they offered enough money to make it worth his while, so off he went. Warner Brothers did, though, object that they couldn't make it Wes. They couldn't have the same character, so they retooled the character to make him look like Wes, but not Wes. As I alluded to earlier, Weird Science is kind of like a Bride of Frankenstein premise, if the bride were hot and smart, kind of injected into the teen sex-laden 1980s film era. John Hughes' high-concept comedy here triggering more happy moments for viewers out of nostalgia than it does, I think, from anything that happens during the course of the movie. Like many 1980s comedies that were aimed at adolescents, it's pretty liberal in sex and potty humor. Guns utilized point-blank range to the face. You know, these kinds of things don't happen as much anymore unless you're in an R-rated comedy material, but this was the 80s. It was a little bit different sensibility back then. Now, originally, Hughes wanted the plot to be kept secret to the public to avoid a television ripoff coming out prior to the film's release. He wrote, again, from a lot of his teenage experiences, feeling like a misfit, an outsider, but this was his fantasy to have the girl of his dreams and to go from a zero to a hero among his peers. The story does question if popularity for being the person that you aren't through artificial means is worth more than being admired by the few who know who you really are. The two teen stars here, they play very likable geeks among their comparatively flavorless peers. The only distinction, I think, between any of the other teens other than the main characters is the douchebag duo who find ways to humiliate Gary and Wyatt. The only adult character, I think, given any kind of distinction is Wyatt's sadistic older brother Chet, who makes sure that Wyatt's home life is about as painful as his school life. LeBrock here, I think she's at absolutely at her most fetching. She gets to play the cheesecake 
Mary Poppins with breasts role. That's what she calls it for all it's worth. Although she's absent from the film for much longer stretches than she should be, she does sell this film in a way that it's hard to imagine anybody else really at the time doing a better, more appealing job as Lisa. Now, although this is a fantastical premise, the film does travel down some very routine avenues toward its ultimate destination, and that includes having a house party while the family's away. You know, you see the teens driving a hot car, snatching desirable girls from their jerkwad boyfriends, very much in keeping with risky business, except for a more fantasy premise here. In between, there's not a lot of sense that can be made, even within its self-contained universe of ideas. It doesn't really make sense for a computer to generate a woman into another room, and then for her to have the brain of a genius because they just input nothing more than a picture of Albert Einstein's head into the scanner. I mean, you have to suspend your disbelief here if you're going to have a few good yucks with Weird Science. And it, it is amusing, at least for a while. Weird Science, though, I think it's a little bit frustrating. I've, I have a love-hate relationship with Weird Science because I think it has a very good premise. It has a good setup. I really like the casting here. There's a lot of good laughs along the way. And then somehow into the last final third of this film, it becomes Animal House meets Roid Warrior. And the last really dissipate, and so does most of my regard for a lot of this movie by then. This is a movie that's built on a lot of childish shenanigans. I mean, there's a lot of brats on the screen. It's the brat pack, what can I say? But there's a lot of childish shenanigans that went on behind the scenes as well. For instance, there was this scene that was budgeted at about $100,000 that involved a full-sized missile on hydraulics crashing up through the house, the sets of the house. That was ruined when Anthony Michael Hall, he happened to have passed gas right before the scene was set up, and the on-screen cast could not stop laughing throughout the entire scene, pretty much ruining all of the shots. So they didn't want to spend another $100,000 to do this shot again, so they fixed the scene by filming the missile going back down, and then they would play it in reverse for the finished movie, so it looked like it was going back up. There's also a very famous shower scene, one of the initial scenes with LeBrock and the boys. That was supposed to be filmed for just a couple of hours, but it ended up being a couple of days because the two lead actors kept getting the giggles being there with a mostly naked LeBrock. LeBrock had pasties on her chest and a kind of a skimpy bottom to cover her full nudity, but she says she probably would be arrested today for some of what she's asked to do in this film with 15-year-old boys. In fact, there was a kissing scene between her and Elon Mitchell-Smith. She even threatened to kick his ass if he stuck his tongue deep in her mouth, as he did on the very first take, because he didn't really know what he should be doing. Now, this next part, I probably did more research than I probably really should. But there was a running joke between Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Rustler, where Downey began making threats to other people on the set that if they didn't treat him well, he was going to take a dump in their office or trailer, which kind of started as a joke, but soon Downey felt like he should actually go through with it to prove that he was as outrageous as he was advertising to everybody. And reportedly, Downey defecated on a chair of Babette Props, Renee Props' trailer, because she got on his nerves. In a Playboy interview sometime later, he said it was Kelly LeBrock's trailer, but then later he said it was somebody else, and then Props came out and said it was her at the time, though, Props defended Downey's false protestations of innocence to producer Joel Silver, who was ready to fire him. He was really out for blood, but effectively, Props saved Downey's career from getting fired from that and probably not working in the industry, at least not for a long time, so saving him there. 
Now, Hughes for the film never really delves beneath very superficial elements for the storyline. He's really content to show more the requisite titillation, the teen partying that really sold tickets at the box office in the mid-1980s. Unlike his other teen films of the 1980s, Weird Science, I don't think it offers the kind of character development or serious undercurrents that you would see Hughes become known for, even in his comedies. Instead, Hughes here turns a very inventive but not very far-reaching teen sex comedy here with only the basic premise setting it apart from at least a dozen others to come out. Just in 1985 alone, there was Real Genius and My Science Project and Back to the Future, a lot of science fiction-based comedies just similar to this, kind of in the same mold. LeBrock and Paxton and a very catchy hit Oingo Boingo title song. I think those are the real legacy of this film for nostalgia buffs. But other than that, it's kind of a disappointment in many other regards, given so much promising talent, so many ideas. John Hughes at the helm, it definitely doesn't live up to a lot of his other films of this time. Now, Weird Science resulted in only a modest hit in 1985. It did make $24 million off of a budget of around $7.5 million, but it still debuted at number four for the week. It finished right below Fright Night, which was making its debut the same week, and it didn't even do as good as European Vacation in its second week at the box office. You know, And that's not mentioning the aforementioned Back to the Future, which was also made by Universal that was dominating number one. It fell out of the top 10 by week three, but it did find its audience eventually on home video and endless cable showings like many films that were overlooked in the theaters at the time. I think there are themes here that do still resonate, even though it's fairly superficial. Finding contentment in yourself instead of being who bullies or babes or big bothersome brothers think you should be. The teenagers have two issues mainly to overcome. Their inexperience with girls and their low standing in their social circles. They kind of go hand in hand in a certain way. Creating Lisa is their way of fixing both of these problems. They give her a genius-level brain, but she becomes so smart that they're intimidated by her, despite her programmed attachment to them. Other than kissing, they don't really use her for sex, so she operates more like a nanny or a chaperone than a lover. Lisa quickly realizes that she was not conjured to be their plaything so much as to help with their confidence, so she defends them with Gary's neglectful parents. She gives Gary's brother Chet some comeuppance. But she also realizes that they can't rely on just her to magically fix everything if they want to grow up from boys to men. So she puts together this party to bring in all their peers. And then Lisa concocts party crashers for the boys to have to stand up to for their self-esteem and to garner the respect of their classmates. And by doing so, they finally get what they wanted at the end of this. Girlfriends, not the perfect girl that they created that they thought they needed, but the ones that they really actually wanted in the end. The opening and closing scenes in the high school gymnasium were reshoots. They were added in post-production. Hughes felt that there needed to be something more to kind of kick into the Danny Elfman theme song for the intro credits, and many felt that the ending had left things on too sad of a note for the audiences who came to like Lisa as a character. They wanted it a little bit more upbeat, so they added a scene where she continues to exist beyond the need for the boys to have her in their lives. The film also earned about $15 million in international money to add to that $24 million domestically. But in other countries, interestingly enough, it had a variety of different titles that were not weird science. For instance, in Japan, it was called Electric Venus. In Denmark, it was Touch Me, I'm Yours. Oh, This Science in Russia, Cool Magic with Lisa. That was in Germany. A variety of countries just called it Dream Woman. 
the explosive woman or the explosive girl in Italy and some Spanish language countries, impure science in Bulgaria and other countries, what a crazy woman in Portugal, girl with a computer in Poland, and uh, electric magnolia, as it was known in Greece, and in Taiwan, it was just called Modern Nursery. So some funny film titles at least came about from Weird Science. Weird Science does have a fervent fan base, I think, especially if you're a John Hughes fanatic. I do think that it requires to truly appreciate Weird Science and understanding of the 1980s because this was a time when nerds were definitively uncool, very much unlike today where being a nerd is kind of a badge of honor in many circles. And the hottest women were consummately objectified during this period. So, you know, it's kind of a bothersome film if you're trying to view it today if with woke lenses in your glasses, especially if you're somebody who's sensitive to seeing bullying or sexism or reinforcement of racial or gender stereotypes. And speaking of racial stereotypes, there's a scene where Anthony Michael Hall imitates a black person that probably wouldn't be done in comedy today. They're at a blues club. This scene really came from a time when Anthony Michael Hall would visit John Hughes' house and they would watch a lot of old comedy videos, including Richard Pryor's stand-up routines. Hall was basically imitating Richard Pryor's Mudbone character to make Hughes laugh, and Hughes decided to incorporate it in Weird Science. He also did a little bit of it in The Breakfast Club as well. Now, after Weird Science, John Hughes, his exclusive deal, that $30 million deal that he had with Universal Pictures, was renegotiated because there was a lot of friction between himself and the studio on The Breakfast Club, and that kind of soured both parties on the continuation of this contract. So under the new agreement, Hughes was allowed to seek work elsewhere. Ultimately, he chose Paramount Pictures, where his friend Ned Tannen had been hired as president. But he was promised much more creative control in that new contract with Paramount. Consequently, Hughes rushed to complete Weird Science to get out of this contract, a film he grew to feel more like an obligation than an inspiration for the studio that he grew to despise. Hughes would go on to call Weird Science in interviews a very bad picture, a rushed job, kind of ashamed of, a very hackneyed plot. He wouldn't disown it, but he definitely did not regard it as something he was really proud to make. Hughes did look forward to making a lot better films with Paramount. He wanted to start it off with a drama that was set in 1962, a film called The Last Good Year. He wanted Anthony Michael Hall to be the star of that vehicle, and that promised to take him into adult character status, but the film was not meant to be. Obviously, he concentrated much more on writing the script to Pretty in Pink, even though somebody else directed it. Unfortunately, by this point, Hughes had a lot of unspoken falling outs with actors. They weren't really falling out so much as he just stopped communicating with them once they turned him down to do other things with their career. For instance, Anthony Michael Hall claims that Hughes also wrote the roles of, of Ferris Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Ducky in Pretty in Pink with him in mind, but it was not meant to be. Contrarily, Hughes said in an interview that Matthew Broderick was really the only person that he imagined playing Bueller and John Cusack was kind of an alternate choice, which would lead some people to speculate Hall was not meant to be Ferris Bueller. He was going to play Cameron Fry, at least in Hughes' mind. Hall, meanwhile, left for Saturday Night Live. He invited his new friend Robert Downey Jr. to come along with him for the 1985-86 to 86 season. And Hall was also picked by Stanley Kubrick to star in Full Metal Jacket, but negotiations stalled out between them, and Kubrick moved on to Matthew Modine. Hughes also offered Paxton a small part in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but by that point, Paxton was hoping to land bigger roles, and he declined, and Hughes never offered him another role afterward. Something similar happened after Pretty in Pink, with Molly Ringwald turning him down, and they never worked again. So 
anyway, I'll talk more about that when I get into Pretty in Pink sometime down the road on this podcast. But for right now, Weird Science is something that I would probably give. It's a very close call to a recommendation. Obviously, if you're a John Hughes fan, you probably know and love this film already. I don't have to recommend it to you. But if you're somebody who's just looking at it as a film on its own, I can't quite give it a recommendation as a good film. It does have a lot of elements that I do enjoy, enough to give it two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think it had all of the tools and talent to be a genuinely good film, but somehow it falls short in some way. And I think really what happened here is that I think John Hughes had all of these ideas of what to do, but he didn't have a lot of good ideas on where to go. And subsequently, the film loses its juice, loses its flavor as it grows toward the end, this chaotic ending that is not nearly as funny or as appealing as the buildup. And so for that, I can only give it two and a half stars out of four. Anyway, Weird Science kind of has lived on into the uh, American culture somewhat. Elon Mitchell Smith, by the way, he left acting in the early 1990s. He became a professor of medieval literature, but he did return to acting briefly in 2017 for a bit part on a Weird Science-themed episode of The Goldberg. So if you're interested in seeing that, it is available in a lot of different places. Weird Science also happened to have been followed by a television series. It started in 1994. It went all the way to 1998. So four and a half seasons, I guess five seasons technically. John Hughes didn't even know it existed. He didn't give approval or anything for this. He didn't like when they did TV shows based on his movies. He had no idea that they were making a TV series until he saw a TV commercial sometime later. Now in 2013, Joel Silver decided he wanted to remake Weird Science. He was going to have a much edgier R-rated remake, kind of in keeping with 21 Jump Street. Michael Bacall was writing the script. The woman was going to be created by a 3D printer, but... After the announcement, it has been in development hell ever since. So will we ever see Weird Science again? Maybe the ship has passed over the years. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this look back at Weird Science. If you have your own thoughts on Weird Science, obviously there are a lot of different opinions on this film. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, and Instagram are also there. You can follow me. Whatever you want to say, all of those are adequate ways to get in touch with me. Email, I think, is the easiest. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, it's a film that came out the same year. It came out shortly after Weird Science, so it was in theaters at the same time as Weird Science. And a lot of people do kind of mix up these movies, maybe because of the names or maybe because of the subject matter. From 1985, I will be looking at Real Genius on next week's episode. So check out that film, Val Kilmer, of course, in the Martha Coolidge-directed film, Real Genius. Until then, though, thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 